finishing, this is the last week on our month, talking about, thinking about, trying to understand our identity. So what I'd like you to do is repeat this after me, please. Who am I? Who am I? In the first service, the guys were playing with me over there. They were like saying it really fast and not caring. And the women were very thoughtful. Who am I? And the guys were like, who am I? So it's like, okay, all right. The heckling crowd over there. But this is what we've been thinking about. And I believe and I pray that the Holy Spirit has been revealing to you perhaps things or circumstances or people or situations that you have been leaning on rather than trusting God in those situations. Because knowing who we are, understanding who we are, explains a lot. It explains why we decide to do some of the things that we do. So let's begin. I'm gonna just review for two minutes and then we'll get on to our subject today, which is identity and intellect. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is a very familiar verse, especially for believers. And we understand that humans alone were made in God's image. Nothing else in creation mirrors who God is, looks like God except for us. So this is a privilege that we have to uncover who God made us to be. Now in the garden, Satan, as we know, the serpent came to Adam and Eve and tried to tell them to do something so that they could be like God. But what I wish that Adam had said or Eve had said is, we are already like God. We are already made in his image. We don't have to do something else to be like God. We don't have to try something different. We don't have to go over there. We don't have to be like this person or wear those particular clothes. We are already like God because he made us in his image. But since they didn't say that, we are where we are today. But I find myself doing the same thing, thinking maybe this is what I need to add to my personality or to my wardrobe or to my possessions or to my friend list without realizing I'm already worthy because I'm made in God's image. Amen? So I want to kind of start with um, uh, as a, a, an event in history, and all of us have read about it in school, and it was when the big ship sailed through the icy, inky waters one night, April, it was right before midnight in April, the year was 1912. Do you remember what happened when this ship sailing in the night hit an immovable object? What was that immovable object? An iceberg. A huge, they speculated it was like 90 foot high and perhaps up to 400 feet long. And I thought, the question has been posed and asked, why weren't there enough life vests? Why weren't there enough lifeboats? And of course, no one has come out and said this, but you gotta, you gotta think, and it's been speculated that the engineers did not believe that that boat would sink. And I was thinking about that 
And I think it's true for us today. What we believe, what we truly trust and believe affects the decisions that we make. And so since the people in charge, the people in charge of outfitting or engineering, whatever, they did not include enough vests. They didn't include enough boats. And it's because they did not believe. What they believed affected what they did. And that's like me today, and that's like you today. What you truly believe about yourself, about your worth, affects the choices that you make. You might not go around your friends or work and say, no, I I just don't think I'm worth very much. I don't think I have any value. I don't think I have anything to offer at this place. Nobody says that. Nobody I know says that. But you can tell by choices that people make if that's what they really believe to be true about themselves. Because they stay in relationships they should not stay in. They make choices they should not make if they truly believed their worth. That they are created in the image of God. And that our value has been settled on the cross. So you might not be a person saying, I'm worthless, nobody likes me, nobody cares. That might not be what you say, but when I look at the choices that you make, is that what I see? We go on in life, and most of us here are old enough that we've hit an iceberg in our life. We've come up against something that is immovable, a situation, a person a diagnosis, and we hit this circumstance, we hit this thing in our life, and we have to decide, now what? Who am I really? That's been stripped away from me. Perhaps my health has been stripped away. My marriage maybe has been stripped away. My friends, my finances, it's when it's all stripped away. Who are you? Are you still worthy? Are you still made in God's image? Or those things defining who you were. Now we're going to look, I'm going to do it, flip it a little bit. We're going to look at two false ways that we define who we are. We've talked in the preceding months, in the preceding month, and if you haven't heard some of the weeks, they're so excellent. Please um, download them or listen to them, however you do it. Really, really good. But... The first is, and this seems so simple, and not just simple, it seems naive, that not trusting God for what I need leads me to have a false identity. But let me explain what I mean by that. This is the most recognized verse in the world. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who, what? Will not perish, but have eternal life. Everyone can quote the verse. We all know it. People that don't believe in God know the verse. But we kind of trip over that word believes in him. Because if we think about it, as we're talking about our identity and where we put our trust and where we put our belief 
In this verse, this actually means for those that trust him completely, for those that rely on him absolutely. It's so common and so easy to say, oh yeah, I, I believe God, I believe what the Bible says. But then when it's time to trust God, when it's time to trust what the Bible says, that's a whole nother story. That's a whole nother thing to be able to relax and trust that God will provide, that God will take care of you. So I had this, um, I didn't think of it at the time because I was a young girl, but I had an experience. And when I was studying, I thought, man, that really is what I'm talking about. So when I was 14, excuse me, I don't know why my mouth is so dry. Must be the fall weather, must be the coolness in the air. That brisk coolness is taking my breath away. But when I was 14, we moved out of the country again. And this time we moved to Costa Rica. And we lived in the capital, San Jose. And there was a place there. It was a natural, kind of like Blue Springs here. It was a natural thing that they had. It was called Ojo de Agua. And there's, there's other Ojo de Aguas in other Central and Latin American countries. But this was one where I was, near where we were. Now, when I was growing up, up to 14, I had never learned to swim. Neither my mother nor my father swam. So if anyone can help me with that, I, I still don't know how to swim. You can edit this from the whatever, but I still don't know how. There's like a, anyway, you got to love me anyway. So we went, so we went to a school, we went to uh, actually an English speaking school there. And for some, for some reason, they let my family, us girls, go to this school free. And it was the school where the military kids went and the ambassador, you know, a, a, a diplomats and stuff like that went to teach their kids. So we were allowed to go there, which was really cool. But one day, uh, my class went on a field trip and the field trip was to Ojo de Agua. So I don't know what I was thinking of. I don't know what planet I came from. I wasn't thinking they're actually going to swim where there's water. So just like a natural spring, this cold, I mean like freezing cold water comes out of the ground. And they had it, you can see they had it sectioned off so you didn't fall down the hole. But, and then it kind of cascaded down to the wall. Now the pot-bellied daddy right there, he was not in the picture. We were trying to find pictures of it so that you could visualize what I'm talking about. These people were not there when I was there. <laughs> That's not my Pastor Mark. <clears throat> so, I lose my train of thought. They only give me 30 minutes. I got to stay on point, people. All right, so the, so the natural spring cascades into a beautiful waterfall. And from there, it goes into this river-like thing, whatever. And now they have a lot of pools. It's like a real, it's kind of like their version of Disney. But back then there was pretty much what you see right there. But I wasn't thinking I'm going to a place that's called Eye of, of Water that we're going to get in the water. So what happens? What generally, now just think back, some of you all that are older than Methuselah, think back what happens when you have teenage boys and teenage girls around water? What happens? The teenage boys end up throwing the teenage girls in the water. 
So I saw this, and it hadn't even hit me up until now. This is how, I don't even know what was my problem. But I start to see this happening. I am freaking petrified because I cannot swim. The water itself is so cold. It's just ridiculous. And I'm looking around, I'm seeing these boys. Of course, part of me is like, throw me in two, throw me in two. And part of me is like, no, I can't be thrown because I can't. Now, the weird thing is, I had already learned in school, because this was a very good school, and we learned about buoyancy, and about how that works. You know, how does a big boat float on the ocean? You know, that kind of thing. And density, and if you're less than what the water is displaced, and what happens, you rise with your buoyant. I even knew the man who came up with, who observed that principle. His name was Archimedes. So in my peanut brain, I knew that that was true. I knew if I could relax, serenity now, I, I would float. I could at least float. I mean, I can't do any strokes, I can't, but I could float. I knew, I believed that it was true, I didn't doubt it. It's in the history books, the record books. But I couldn't relax. I couldn't, even though I knew it in my brain, I couldn't trust it with my life because in my mind, if I went under the water, I was going to die. I was just going to die. That was the end of my life, 14 years. So I knew it here, but I could not trust what I actually believed to be true. And that's how I believe some of us as Christians walk through life. We see what God says about our worth or what he says about what he will do for us, what he says about his promises to help us. And we, 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 truly believe it. But when it comes time to actually trust him, trust that if we tithe, like Pastor Peter was saying, trust that if we put him first, he will give us these things that are, are, are bound up in our heart, the good things that are bound up in our heart. To trust that he will protect our children and as we take the time to train them, to trust God with our family, to trust God. We know, we know who he is. But when it comes time to relax and let God's life in me make me buoyant, make me stay above the water, I just, it's two different things. Believing and trusting sisters and brothers are two different things, very different things. So the second way, and this is a really clunky sentence, so I apologize. Uh, this, was, this was my best version of it. You should have seen it before. Not allowing God's spirit the freedom to overturn or to veto my decisions. And most, some of us might be going, well, I don't, I don't ever think I put my own understanding in front of God's, but really, really you don't think you do? God's word says, do this, trust me in this. I'll just use this example of the pastor Peter. Trust me with your finances. See if I don't, eh. My intellect says, I don't know how this is gonna work. I don't know how, it does not make sense. With my intellect, I can't figure it out. So I'm not, mm, I believe it, but I don't trust that he is gonna be who he said he will be in my life. Um, Pastor Peter on the first week, sorry I keep using your name, you just 
turned out that way this week. This is not a promotion for Pastor Peter. He's already the lead pastor, so there we go. But that first week he talked about how we're formed and, and things like that. And he used this wonderful example of those of us that love to study theology. I see Jim Sellers here. I'm going to get to your class, by the way, too. So anyway, promo plug for Jim Sellers' class, the first and the last Sunday at 930. Yes, there you go. All right. I totally forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> That's why I have notes. I know I'm not even looking at him. Okay. So one of the things that he talked about was that incredible sermon that Paul gave in Athens. Remember it was called, a place called Mars Hill and all the idols. If you didn't hear the sermon, please go back and listen. But, and as theologians, we marvel at the intellect that Paul had. I mean, in my humble opinion, only Jesus was a better apologist than the apostle Paul. I'm not sure what it is about intellect, but, oh, I better not say that. Anyway, I, I read the description of what the apostle Paul looked like. Zacchaeus wasn't the only wee little man in the Bible. Paul was a wee little man. He was short, short, short. So this towering intellect in this little scrawny body. But what he said, the brilliance of the apostle Paul and his brain was that he looked at the culture around him, the, the different gods, and, and he, he, he understood what they were doing in their culture. And he was able to take a hook from that, something that they were interested in, and tie it to a revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and today, we still think this is a model sermon, right? Don't you all wish we had something like that going on for us? So, but I think that Paul felt a little bit differently than that. And that's what I like about this second point, the second thing. We think that would be the best sermon in the world and, and everyone will just fall into the power. But actually, it doesn't say that many people believed in Athens. And all the other places that he went, Ephesians and, and Corinth, Ephesus and Corinth and all these places, it said the city was turned upside down. That people were like raving lunatics trying to kill him because he was infuriating the religious people. And, and the whole towns are changed by him being there. They beat him. They put him in prison. They would have riots against him. We all know the things that he suffered. But here in Athens, it says later on that only a few believed. With the powerhouse of a sermon, the towering intellect that he used did not result in the same thing that happened when he went to Corinth. Or Ephesus. So here's what he says about what happened as he observed. He made a choice. He made a decision. Brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. That's exactly what he did in Athens. He was eloquent and he was wise. And he was sharp. And he was concise. But he said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that here. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now I am, I am pro-education. 
I am all for it. Go as far, develop your mind as fully as you can. The capacity that God has given you, take it to the edge, but don't rely on it to establish who you are. Don't rely on that because what we know is not our most persuasive tool. If it keeps us from what? Doesn't that sound so simple? You could have said that yourself. But we, don't, but we find ourselves actually relying so much on our own strength, our own understanding, our own reasoning about things. Hmm. Now, to close, when Paul was in Ephesus, he said something that was so hated, so divisive, so troubling that the religious leaders were all, were all bent on running him out of town in some places, putting him in prison in other cities where he preached this message. But it was an idea. It was, it was the truth, but it was a new idea they hadn't heard before. So as Paul is in Ephesus and he's talking to new Christians, he's talking to new believers, baby Christians, and he wants them to know something. And as he's sharing this idea, the religious people are getting stirred up. They're getting angry. They're, they're, they're violent towards him because what he is telling those new Christians, what he wants them to understand is you are a new person. You have a new identity now. You are no longer the same person that you were. Now that you believe you are now in Christ. And that idea that they now took on who Christ was, that their, actually their life was hidden in Christ, was so infuriating to the, the religious and the legal people. But Paul spent the whole book of Ephesians telling us how to form our character around who God says that we are. Amen? The whole book is filled with who you are as a believer, who you are as a new Christian. It's no longer Reese who, who goes to the university. It's now Reese who is hidden in Christ. And the life that he lives, he lives for God and for God's glory. It's all about what God says we are. If we try to change our identity and build our identity starting with us, these are my talents. These are what I like to do. This is what I don't like. This is who I want to be around. If we start with us, we will never reach the place that God has called us to reach. We have to start with who God says we are. We start with God's word and let him tell us who we are because we don't know who we are. We don't know. We try. How many things have you tried? How many fads have you gone through? How many different things? Because we don't know who we are apart from God. He created us. He put his spirit in us as believers. He informs us who we are. And if I can just try to conform to the image of Christ, where my life is hidden and he is living through me, what a wonderful life that will be. What a wonderful, what a life of worth I will have. So let's close. So as he's talking about character formations, he's also telling it to the Corinthians. And he says, 
something really, really, really strong. But he's trying to tell the Christians, he's trying to keep the Christians with their head on straight. Have you ever talked to someone that they say all these spiritual words and they just, he's like, eh, shut up. I mean, it's like, you know, they believe it, but it's so, it's so exhausting to listen to them. So he says here, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? And we all say, yes, we know that. Don't fool yourself. He's saying, but please, come on, don't fool yourself. I really mean this. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were what? I was once like that. I can think of a couple of things on that list. That was my identity. It was part of my identity, but I, I, I did those things. My behavior was lining up with what I truly believed, which was God didn't care. He wasn't watching. He didn't see. Some of you were once like that. He's trying to tell them that they are now in Christ and their identity is new and our identity is found only, our worth is found only when we are in Christ. We'll finish this up. But you were cleansed. He's saying why some of them that were once like that are no longer to consider themselves like that. No longer to think they do those practices. No longer indeed to do those practices, to make a practice of those things. You are cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. That is our new identity. I am right with God. I am at peace with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Would you stand with me, please? The kingdom of God is not necessarily a logical kingdom. Spiritual things are not necessarily logical. In fact, Jesus was continually telling his disciples, asking his disciples to do something that did not make any sense. They couldn't figure it out. They didn't understand it, but they obeyed. And I know in the world, there's like a saying or that seeing is believing. And if you've been married for, you know, a while, decades, you kind of, you can, you can find out that there's an attitude that creeps into your relationship when your husband apologizes or the wife apologizes and we kind of, the other one just kind of gets this, well, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it kind of an attitude. I know that's never happened to anyone out there, but every now and again, Pastor Mark and I will kind of like, hmm, prove it. Don't, but in the kingdom of God, in the spiritual realm, believing is seeing. We believe what God says and we will see the manifestation of that. Amen? It's not logical. I, I, I need to see it before I believe it. We don't see the kingdom. We don't see heaven, but we believe that it's so. So I just encourage you, for those of you that have maybe made your intellect or your IQ or your whatever, whatever goes with that as 
really the most important part of who you are, the thing that you're the most proud of. Let me encourage you to not let that stop you from listening to the leading of God's Spirit. Because much like the Apostle Paul, there are things he will want to do just through you specifically. That if you're not listening, if you're not willing to say, I don't understand, but I trust you. And I'm gonna humble myself and I'm gonna do this. We'll miss out on what God has for part of our life. So let's pray. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it's important to us that we honor you with every part of our life. And Father, we repent for looking to another person and putting the weight on them of being our God. If we look to a a circumstance or a, a friend, anything, Father, that we depend on for who we are, Lord, we repent. And as you show us our heart, as you show us the things that we're setting up as little idols all around our life. Father, we invite you. We give you the freedom to show us that so that we can repent and turn. We love you, Father. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this body. We pray for those that are listening and watching us, Father, that you would be with them, they could feel your presence. And Lord, we honor you in this place. And we thank you that our lives are indeed hidden in Christ. That that idea is radical to us today, just like it was so many decades and centuries, millennia ago. Father, thank you that you have made provision for us, for our worth, for where it can be found on a foundation that will not be shaken. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.